Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week, staff correspondent Chloe Curtis talks with Joe Backer-Laird, one of the world's leading art lawyers. Joe served as general counsel to Christie's for 10 years and is currently of counsel at Patterson Belknap. Chloe and Joe discuss the role of the lawyer in art transactions and the type of relationship that exists between lawyer and client. Their conversation focuses on the role of the lawyer in representing private collectors, museums, and artist foundations in various dealings. Enjoy. Welcome to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm staff correspondent Chloe Curtis. This week, we're speaking with Joe Backer-Laird. Ms. Laird is of counsel at the firm of Patterson Belknap, where she concentrates her practice on all aspects of art law, working with artists, private collectors, museums, art organizations, galleries, dealers, advisors, and financial institutions. Ms. Laird has over 25 years of experience, including 10 years as Senior Vice President and General Counsel of Christie's, one of the world's leading auction houses. She's also an adjunct professor of art law at the Columbia University School of Law, where she received her Juris Doctor degree. Thank you so much for joining us, Ms. Laird. It's my pleasure. Recently, the founder of Arts Economics, Dr. Claire McAndrew, estimated total sales in the global art market for 2017 reached $63.7 billion worldwide. This was a 12% increase from 2016, with the U.S. having the largest market by value, an estimated 42% of market share. As art transactions continue to grow, it is important to consider the role of the lawyer in these transactions, and today we will be discussing this topic with Ms. Laird. We will consider this question with regard to the type of relationship that exists between lawyer and client, focusing on the role of the lawyer in representing private collectors, museums, and artist foundations in various dealings. Let us begin by looking at the role of the lawyer in representing private collectors in the acquisition and deacquisition of artwork. From my understanding, it seems that art transactions occur frequently without the involvement of a lawyer at all, similar to how a person might buy a very expensive handbag or a piece of furniture. So I wonder at what point in an art transaction between a private collector and a gallery is a lawyer typically involved? Does it depend on the value of the work? You know, actually it doesn't. Uh, and, and sometimes some of the smaller transactions uh, are become more complicated than even large transactions. Um, the first thing that's, uh, that, that people in the art market may not know is, uh, is that the statute of frauds applies to art transactions like it applies to anything else. So that where you have a transaction that is worth, for example, $500 or more in the state of New York, there has to be a writing uh, that reflects the agreement on that transaction. It doesn't necessarily have to be a formal contract, but there has to be um, an offer and acceptance that appears in some kind of a written document. Some exceptions to that, but essentially you need a writing. Uh, what the writing says uh, is is um, is a different issue. Uh, you may not need to have a long and complicated contract because uh, there are statutory uh, provisions that give you some of the basic 
protections that you need in uh, an art contract and other purchase and sale agreements. The reason that you don't worry about it when you go into a store and buy an expensive handbag is that under the Uniform Commercial Code, there is a, a warranty that applies in all transactions to any material term in any sort of a sale document, an invoice, a bill of sale, whatever, is deemed to be a warranty of that. So that uh, if something says you're buying, a, if it, in, in, in an art context, if an invoice says you're buying a Picasso, mm-hmm. you are buying a Picasso. You are warranted that it's a Picasso. The, the Uniform Commercial Code also implies a warranty of good title. So that when you go to Bergdorf's, you don't have to do research as to whether or not the store has good title. They have warranted it to you. Uniform Commercial Code is designed to make commerce move more smoothly. If you had to do that every time, commerce would, would stand still. When you're buying from a merchant, an auction house or a gallery, you also get a warranty of merchantability, which even goes beyond authenticity. What it says is that what you are buying will be marketable or is marketable in the market in which it exists, in which Mm -hmm. it flows, as what it says it is, as what it is purported to be. So, for example, if there's doubt about something's authenticity, like there was doubt about the authenticity of various works during the Nodler issue, had Nodler as a uh, as part of the provenance, and and so you couldn't in that market and for some foreseeable future until it was proved that the works were inauthentic, you could raise the warranty of merchantability against the merchant from whom you purchased it. As things get more complicated, the more complicated a transaction, the more important it is to have a writing because unusual terms will not be enforced the same way that a simple purchase and sale document will be enforced. If somebody buys and part of the purchase is a promise, as an example, to make the work available for an upcoming museum show, Mm -hmm. that's not going to be enforced unless it's in writing. If there is some unusual payment term, that you're going to pay in three tranches over the course of X number of months. Unless that's specified, it's not presumed. Uh, So it needs to be specified in an invoice or in an agreement. Another reason to involve a lawyer at the beginning, even if there's just an invoice, uh, is again, if the dealer, if the seller is trying to impose what they say are boilerplate terms. Uh, sort of on the reverse of the invoice. Boilerplate you really need to to read carefully because it can eliminate rights that you are assuming that you otherwise have. Know who you're dealing with. Do a deep Google of whoever you are going to be purchasing from and find out, are they for real? Are they, I've done that with people who have called me to retain me. And in one circumstance, found out that somebody had done federal time for fraud. Uh, Make sure you know what the history is of the person that you're purchasing from. Also, there are times in which contracts are, and formal contracts, 
need to be in writing by regulation. The auction houses, for example, are required by, at least in the city of New York, to have written agreements that set out basic terms, what's being sold, what the commission is, the reps and warranties that are being provided by the buyer. So in your experience, do you find that collectors will wait until an issue arises to contact you, or are you involved from the very beginning from them even considering whether they're going to purchase or sell a work of art? Um, It depends on the circumstances. Clearly, we get a lot of clients who come in and say, look, this is what's happened. I have a problem. Mm -hmm. That's fine. We also have clients who may have inherited a significant piece of art. They know that they are not experienced in selling art, and they want to make sure that they are not being taken advantage of, and they come to us then. We also have, thankfully, regular clients who are engaged in frequent transactions, and they usually come to us, in most cases, they will come to us after the terms of the agreement have been negotiated, and then we document the transaction. I sometimes going back and revisiting what the terms are to see if we can't do better. Okay, and how does that relationship between a client and a lawyer differ between the relationship between a client and an art advisor or a client and a gallery? It depends on what their relationship is with the client or the gallery. As a lawyer, and all of your listeners at least at the law school, will know this. As a lawyer, we have fiduciary relationships, fiduciary responsibilities to our clients. By dint of our role, by dint of our profession, we are acting as their agent. We must act always in their best interest. The same is true as trustees of a, of a museum, executors of estates. By our role, we are defined as fiduciaries. There are times when a gallery will have a fiduciary responsibility to a collector. That's when the collector has consigned something or when an artist has consigned something. And in those circumstances, the dealer is acting as their fiduciary because they are acting as their agent. And that is automatically, by law, a fiduciary relationship. Uh, With respect to artists... The New York legislature, and I believe the legislature in other states, maybe including California, has said that whenever there is, whenever an artist has work by that artist with the gallery for sale, it is deemed to be a fiduciary relationship no matter how it is structured. So if a consigner sells something to a gallery and the gallery sells it on, That's an arm's length transaction. They are not a fiduciary. If an artist does that, they are given additional statutory protection against being abused by their agent. Uh, And it is deemed to be an agency relationship, even if it was an arm's length sale. So it's Uh, different for an artist. Right. There's extra protection. But the basic concept of a consignee of an auction house, of a gallery, being a fiduciary of the consignor Mm -hmm. is absolutely fundamental. There are some people in the art market who, you know, didn't go to law school Mm -hmm. and, and may not have been taught about when you are a fiduciary. 
sometimes that leads them to tears for the gallery when they in fact breach a fiduciary relationship that they may not have understood that they have. Okay. So for example, say we were at or mm-hmm. your client is at an art fair and they're interested in a painting that's primary market, so direct from the artist to the gallery and they go to the gallery's booth and they say, I'm interested, but I need to put it on hold for the next two hours. Does the gallery at that point have a fiduciary relationship or responsibility to the artist to allow it to be on hold? Is it at their discretion? How does it work in that situation? Well, first of all, to make clear, the gallery has no responsibility other than perhaps a contractual responsibility to the potential buyer. Fiduciary responsibility is entirely with the artist. The gallery can make a reasoned judgment that says, look, of course art fairs are, uh, are quick, they're fast, sometimes it takes people a couple of weeks to figure out. But in an art fair you need to move more quickly. Uh, and they may decide that in fact it is an exercise of their fiduciary responsibility to permit that kind of reserve because it may actually result in a sale. What it, at an art fair, what galleries will do is that if somebody else is interested in it in the work, they will make, put them on a second reserve. They will keep a list. Uh, they will also follow up with the person and say, "Look, somebody else wants to buy it. We really need to have an answer." At some point, they will take it off reserve okay. uh, because they have a fiduciary responsibility to the artist to. To, to do their best to make a sale at the best possible price for the artist and they were in a business and art fairs are expensive and you can't miss a sale or miss the potential for a sale at the fair so there was a case Ravenna versus Christie's that discussed fiduciary relationship between a client and the auction house Christie's. Um, Would you mind discussing that a little bit and what happened in that situation? Uh, Sure. Uh, Christie's has an old tradition going back to London of people coming in from the city, from the countryside with things in sacks and baskets. Uh, And they come and ask for some sense of how much it might be worth. That persists to this day. Uh, It doesn't happen quite as often. It's not as much of a tradition, but it persists. And from time to time, somebody will come in with something and say, gee, what do you think? People will also abuse the tradition and will come in and say, what do you think this is worth? Uh, and with a photograph of something or with the actual desk or, or painting or, or piece of jewelry. And you say, yeah, it could be between ten or $15,000. And then they throw it on eBay and they say, appraised by Christie's at fifteen or twenty or ten or $15,000. Wrong. That's not what it's meant for. And this, a similar thing happened in the Ravenna case, where a man brought in a photograph of an old masterwork that had been purchased for his wife. Let's make up a number, $10,000. She had paid $10,000 for it. And James Bruce Gardine, an old master specialist at Christie's in New York, came down and looked at the photograph, just at the photograph, and said, um, you know, off the cuff, that it could be worth... Thirty or forty thousand dollars. 
this man went back to his wife and said, essentially, we've got it made, because they already had a contract to sell it for $70,000. So they knew that that price, or they, they had confirmed that that price was a good price. That's what they used it for, unbeknownst to James. Then the person who purchased the work actually consigned it to Christie's. And when Christie's, at this point, with a fiduciary responsibility to a consigner, and he brought in the actual work, not the photograph, decided that, uh, you know, researched it and decided it was actually the work of the particular old, old master rather than the work of somebody in his studio, and sold it, again, making up numbers for a couple hundred thousand dollars. They come back and say, wait a second, we were relying on you. You had a fiduciary responsibility to us. And the court said, oh, no, they didn't. And, and of course he didn't. There was no, not a, I mean, there was no contractual relationship. There was no history of, of relationship at all. The only reason people seem to think that there was is because it was Christie's. Is it was because of one, it was one of the major auction houses, and people think that the auction houses have a broader cultural responsibility to, uh, and, and, and responsibility kind of to everybody. Let's change the facts. And you have a piece of jewelry, mm-hmm. and you bring it into the estates department, or you're, 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 you go to Tiffany's, and, and Tiffany says, Yeah, it is probably we could sell it for $5,000, whatever. And then it turns out that it may be worth $50,000. Do you have a cause of action against Tiffany's? Of course not. Right. Let's take it down from Tiffany's. You go into, you have a Native American bracelet, which I love, <laughs> uh, and I'm more likely to buy than a $5,000 bracelet at Tiffany's. And you go into a Native American shop and say, look, I bought this a few years ago. It's by this artist. What do you think? And they give me an estimate. If, if in fact it's worth more, do I have a claim against them? Of course not. And the court, I think, held absolutely correctly in that case that there was no duty at all, let alone a fiduciary one. So at what point, if the, if the collector had actually brought in the real painting and mm-hmm. Christie's had done a proper valuation of it, at what point does that fiduciary responsibility between Christie's and the consigner, is it not until they have a contract that it arises? First of all, if, if somebody brought in a work of art, mm-hmm. the whole process would be different. Christie's and Sotheby's will both do appraisals of works of art. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when they do appraisals of works of art, there is an appraisal agreement, and the appraisal agreement has some qualifications. This is our best opinion. Uh, we're assuming that it's authentic. I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of different caveats that are placed around that opinion, as all appraisers do. Mm-hmm. When it was the, the actual, uh, and so there might be a contractual responsibility, uh, but there's actually a fiduciary responsibility when it gets consigned and Christie's becomes their agent. Okay. There are other duties that might kick in, particularly contractual, but fiduciary is different. Okay. So I wonder how the lawyer-client relationship changes when the client acquiring or selling the works of art is an institution. 
Recently, in July 2017, the Board of Directors of the Berkshire Museum were facing a $10 million expense to renovate the museum and a significant reduction in their endowment. They announced a plan to sell a portion of their art collection, which included two famous Norman Rockwell paintings, and they contracted with Sotheby's to sell 40 pieces in total from their collection, with the estimated proceeds totaling over $50 million. The proposed sale created considerable controversy among the residents of Berkshire County and within the art world at large. So at what point in an institution's decision to sell pieces from their collection does a lawyer become involved? At two points. The first, most importantly, is the decision as to whether or not to sell the works. Let's set up the scene. In the museum world, it is an accepted ethical precept that one does not sell works of art except to buy new works of art that you only use your collection for the purposes of curating and preserving the collection. Uh, And you don't use it for maintenance. You don't use it for overhead. You don't use it for salaries and education. That's an ethical responsibility that is um, self-enforced, self-regulated by the Museum Directors Association, by the Museums Association. And then there's a fiduciary responsibility that the trustees of, let's say for now, museums, because this is where this really gets played out, Mm -hmm. and the only place that it really gets played out, is, uh, and that's a responsibility to the institution. I really don't know all the facts of the Berkshire case, but I know from experience that trustees of institutions take this really seriously, the people who I have worked with. And there are times when the continuing existence of the institution really relies on being able to sell some work of art because there is nothing else to do. This comes up especially with embedded museums where, for example, uh, there is a museum embedded in a university. That's the most, uh, the most common example. Uh, and where the university is financially strapped in a way that it means, for example, that they're, they're going to stop paying teachers, they're going to cut out academic programs, uh, that janitorial staff is being laid off. Uh, sometimes after long careers, things that are really compelling from the point of view of a trustee with fiduciary responsibility to the university. The issue that they're then facing is what, what is the appropriate exercise of that fiduciary responsibility to the institution, knowing that any kind of deaccessioning program or any kind of deaccession, is likely to cause controversy because of the ethical guideline. Now, I'm I'm, I'm not opposed to the ethical guideline. I am married to a former museum director who takes it really seriously, and we have interesting conversations about this. But as with any guideline, there are circumstances in which I think a trustee has to go the other way. And it is, um, it's understandable for a trustee to go the other way. Having said that, then they have a responsibility 
to maximize the financial benefits of doing it. Uh, there are some proposals about, well, if you sell, you have to sell to another museum, which makes moral sense. But in terms of a trustee's fiduciary responsibility, uh, if that will be a great discount over what they might otherwise be able to achieve, and those funds are necessary for the survival and viability of the institution, that may not be something that they can lawfully do. Okay, and as a lawyer representing mm -hmm. an institution, who is your responsibility to? Is Are you looking at the future of the institution? Are you, are you reporting directly to the board of directors? Well, you're, if you are hired on behalf of the, you know, hired by the university, your responsibility is to the university. They are your client. Uh, the, the university will act through on most large, big decisions like this, will act through the board of directors. Sometimes you're simply reporting to the dean, to the president, in the case of, of a direct museum, um, you know, a non-embedded museum, the director, but, but this is all essentially, and if you're a lawyer for a museum, you will always be mindful of the governance responsibilities and that ultimately you are responsible to the Board of Trustees. So many foundations have also dissolved over the past few years as they find it difficult to survive with the cost of increasing legal disputes. In 2007, Joe Simon, who is a London-based filmmaker, sued the Andy Warhol Foundation. After the board ruled that a silkscreen featured during the artist's lifetime on the cover of his catalog, Raisonne, was inauthentic. Then in 2011, the foundation announced that it was disbanding its authentication board after it said it spent more than $6 million fighting the suit. How has this disillusion of so many artist foundations that were essential for the purposes of authenticating artworks impacted the role of the lawyer in transactions that involve the work of deceased artists? Um, it's clearly made it more complicated. Uh, first, uh, a radical notion that it, it is not a happy one for most collectors is that there is always some risk in, in buying art because while every expert in the world may say, yes, that's a Rembrandt, there, there, there is enough risk or there is always a possibility that that will be proved wrong. And that was demonstrated, I think it was at the National Gallery in London, with an exhibition of Rembrandt, not Rembrandt, of things that had been authenticated, de-authenticated um, over time. So there's always some risk. Your point is wanting to limit it. Even catalogs resume get corrected, or, the author, or somebody comes up with a new catalog resume that becomes the market expert, that the, that the market gels around and has more a trust in. And they may make a different decision. The fact is that the people who do this sort of work are generally scholars. You kind of want them to be scholars. You want them to be as independent as possible. 
uh, because otherwise it becomes an authentication that is um, that is cast in doubt. And but how is somebody to do that if they are going to be hit with millions of dollars in legal fees? Almost uniformly, when an action is brought against an authenticator or a, an author of a catalog resume, almost uniformly, uh, the case is dismissed. Or the, the ultimate winner of the case is the authenticator. That's great. The law is on their side. They have no responsibility to the general public. They have no responsibility to even, uh, not the general, not like they're some elite, but they have no, no market responsibility legally. Um, but to get from here to there costs an enormous amount of money, which is why the Warhol Foundation, the Basquiat Foundation, all stopped doing sort of a, a timely authentications of works because that tied them to the market. And so it was harder uh, to make the argument that, that this was a scholarly venture. They are not authenticating things now that's tied to the market, but, mo but, but the, pe the foundations that do catalogs resume continue to do them, but won't authenticate things in the meantime, because then it is more really a scholarly art historical venture. In terms of what you do uh, when you have a client that's buying something, they don't generally like to hear, gee, I'm sorry, it's a risk. You know, right. are you willing to take the risk? What you do to mitigate the risk is, first of all, you do due diligence, just like you do due diligence uh, from about people that you're buying from or selling to. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you you do the research on the catalog. Uh, you do the you do research about the piece itself. Is something being said to you, or, or you do research about? I'm sorry, the dealer. I was so you do research about the dealer, and you do research of what is being said to you mm -hmm. about the provenance of the work. Again, you can go back and research everybody in the provenance if people are mentioned. One, in one of the Nodler matters, IFAR was not able to authenticate one of the works because they could not verify it, sort of, you know, by a, a, a decision on what wasn't there. They could not verify the provenance that had been um, provided by Nodler. and said, okay, we, we can't, we, we are mixed on the connoisseurship, we are mixed on the examination of the work, those were good copies that were made, but we can't authenticate. We can't verify this, so we can't authenticate it. Uh, so you have people do research, and you get reps and warranties. And if you're buying something from somebody who is not willing to give you a clean representation of authenticity, not to the best of my knowledge, I think it is, somebody told me that it was, but they're giving a rep and warranty, which is not necessarily an assertion that I believe it's true, although most often it come, that's what people think it is, but it's an allocation of liability if it's not. And if somebody's not willing to do that, don't buy from them. Same thing about title. Uh, and the same thing about anything that's important to you. 
if it's important to you that you that you are buying a a dress uh, that was used as a movie costume, if it's important to you that it was actually owned by Marilyn uh, or worn by Marilyn Monroe, then you get a clean warranty that this was worn by Marilyn Monroe in this movie. Otherwise, you don't do it. Now, the concept, the reason that they call it due diligence, D-U-E, diligence, rather than just diligence, is that the kind of research that you're going to do for any particular thing is going to be, to to some extent, in in direct relation to the cost, how much it matters to you, gee, if I found that, that this... This movie script was actually um, the, the property of somebody who worked on Some Like It Hot and, and it wasn't actually Marilyn Monroe's, would that really bother me? Then, then you don't do a lot. If I, if I spend $100 on a print that I find online, I don't spend a lot of time looking right. at that. But if you're, if you're spending enough money that it's important to you, and for some people, that will be $10,000. For some people, that will be $50 million. But, every, but, but it's, is it important to you? Then you do the sort of research that you think you should. And you need to listen with both ears. Mm-hmm. You can't just hear what you want to hear. You know, you want to trust the guy who's selling something to you. But the road is littered with people who haven't put on their cynical hat. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, you and I were talking before about a circumstance where clients were presented with an opportunity to purchase a group of works from an Asian museum, uh, and something felt wrong. We were never, you know, there, there was no. They, this is all confidential. They said it hasn't been announced yet, and in fact, there was nothing public about them looking to sell any works. Uh, and the dealings that we had with the people who were acting, saying that they were acting as the agents were just unusual. Any actual evidence that they were authorized to do what they were doing uh, was something that they were unwilling to give us. We asked for a letter from somebody who we could verify was a, was a lawyer for the institution, and they wanted to give us uh, a letter from their lawyer instead. We ultimately didn't do the deal. Couple of years later, there was a lawsuit bought by somebody who either didn't bother to do, or, or didn't do that kind of due diligence, or who thought he would simply take a shot. But he had, in fact, paid money to purchase these works, uh, and was now litigating the fact that they weren't actually for sale. So it seems that as a lawyer representing a client, Mm -hmm. there are ways definitely to mitigate risk if the client is interested in buying a work of art that doesn't have a certificate of authenticity. But I feel like auction houses get works all the time that don't have a certificate of authenticity. And it kind of seems like it's a harder line there. Like, they're not going to put something in their auction if it doesn't have a certificate of authenticity. Actually, actually, that's not right. Okay. Um, most works are sold without certificates of authenticity. And certificates of authenticity are, frankly, uh, the easiest thing to fake. 
and and so they don't necessarily mean much. Uh, they can be used as one. Or, sorry, yeah. I guess I meant yeah. more for like the more well-known artists mm-hmm. that say the ha- Keith Haring, who, where they know that the Keith Haring Foundation did issue many certificates of authenticity when they were involved in that business. Like, mm-hmm. the auction house yeah. now, if they got a Keith Haring yeah. painting or an Andy Warhol, might not accept it because they know that the ones that are authentic have a certificate. Well, and there may there may be other things that are indicia that okay. attach to any particular artist that show that it's authentic. There may not be a formal certificate of authenticity. If it was purchased from the artist's primary dealer, and you know that that's the right provenance, and if no questions have ever been raised about that, that's one way that the auction houses will get comfortable. Okay. Uh, They will, in appropriate circumstances, look to get information from experts in the field uh, to make sure that there isn't any controversy over whether or not it's authentic. In order for Christie's to sell the Leonardo as as a you know a huge example, the the, the owners of the Leonardo had spent a, a long time meticulously building its record of being authenticated by I think all but one of the major experts in Leonardo, and unlike with contemporary or impressionist or modern artists where there's like one person that the that the market really congeals around for somebody for for um, an old master like Leonardo there are a lot of experts uh, Christie's did the same thing mm-hmm. they went back and confirmed with all of those people that's on a grand scale uh, they will do that again um, they will do the sort of research that they believe they need to do in the circumstance and will not sell anything if they have reason to believe. And when I say Christie's, I really mean Christie's and Sotheby's. It's an old habit, (laughs) but uh, but I mean both auction houses. And both auction houses really are careful about that. So as you discussed, uh, Leonardo da Vinci painting sold at Christie's this past November for about $450 million, which obliterated the precious world record for the most expensive work of art ever sold at auction. And just last May, a $110 million Basquiat painting was sold at Sotheby's, which made Basquiat the most expensive American artist ever sold at auction. As we see the art market continue to grow and we see collectors and institutions spending more and more on works of art, do you feel that the involvement of lawyers will become a more essential component of art transactions? It may or may not, but it may, and it may or may not be because of those sorts of sales. Uh, clearly, the people who are selling and buying works like that are familiar with hiring lawyers. Uh, they are familiar with working with lawyers, and they are familiar with the sorts of agreements that are required when you do that. And those are anomalies. I mean, may, first, certainly the Leonardo, at least so far, is an anomaly. But, um, but the Basquiat and other things that sell for over $100 million uh, are the, top, the very top of the market. 
they do not represent the entire market. There are still emerging artists. There are still art students getting out of art school. There are still mid-career artists. There are galleries really at every level. And the auction houses also sell lots of things at every level. So I think all of the things that we spoke about before still hold true. I Obviously, maybe not obviously, um, but when something costs more or from the seller's side, it is a significant asset that you want to be sure you are going to get the most money for from as you can, you want a complicated agreement or you want an agreement that details what you're going to get with the auction house or, or, the, uh, or a gallery. You want to know that it's going to be insured at what you think is the real value. You want to know what sort of commission you're going to get and is it going to be, or what kind of commission you're going to pay or financial deal you're going to get from the auction house. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the sort of thing that, um, you know, at that level of the market, there is almost always real negotiation of terms. But at the other levels, things kind of remain the same. Okay. Well, thank you so much for doing this podcast with me. It's been a pleasure having you. That's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hershkowitz. Special thanks to staff correspondent Chloe Curtis, and a huge thank you to Joe Backer-Laird for being part of this week's episode. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at at Fordham IPLJ or on Facebook.com slash Fordham IPLJ. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting patreon.com slash Fordham IPLJ and becoming a patron for just $1. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.